Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. We have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. The collect was prayed. And then not once, but twice we got a rendition of God's law spoken where we're saying, oh Lord, have mercy upon us. God's law, his righteous revelation of his character and his expectation for his image bearers in this world. And what are we to say other than, Lord, have mercy? And yet, can't help but think in our culture, this concept of sin or wrongdoing or not doing enough seems to fall often on deaf ears or disinterested hearts, if we're honest. We think, okay, we've heard that before. What's next? What can I do? Esther Perel is a noted Belgian psychotherapist. She's done TED Talks and the sort, and uh, she quips, we brought happiness down from the afterlife, first to be an option, then to be a mandate. thought that was really interesting um, understanding of Western culture. Um, no longer is it the by and by when I die on the other side of the Jordan, then happiness and peace and goodness and joy will reign, but it's, no, I need to have my best life now. YOLO, I only get one shot here. This is it. It's up to me. And I think in that, we can see in our culture that we've traded Western, in the Western world, a Christian guilt, this notion of shame that we haven't been good enough, that we haven't lived up to some expectation. We've traded that for an aspirational narcissism of you can be anything you want to be, you can do anything you want to do, nothing will stop you. You get to make the choices. And we've, tra- we've made that trade. And, and in that, we have a cottage industry called the self-help uh, industry, which is a booming business, $10 billion a year strong. Um, I came across a book written by two business school professors, and, and it explored life hack wisdom, how you can kind of achieve the optimal self and become more you. The title is, it's a long title, it's Desperately Seeking Self-Improvement, A Year Inside the Optimization Movement. And I think that captures very much the spirit of our zeitgeist this culture has. Uh, so they embark on this one-year program, and what these two, two fellows did was they targeted a new area of the self to improve on a different month, and then they wrote about this experience, and they threw themselves all in. Here's some of the things that they went into. They tried to optimize their athletic and intellectual prowess. They tried to dabble in spirituality and creativity and pleasure. And so, so first they went and they bulked up at CrossFit. They got physically strong and fit. And then they decided to try a master cleanse diet. And they did that one. Then they tried mindfulness and yoga. They consulted with therapists and life coaches. And they even attempted stand-up comedy. I thought that was interesting. But this one takes the cake, though. Um, At one point, they attended a masculinity workshop. Guys, I don't know if we'll advertise this one at the cathedral, but um, they, it involved screaming and weeping while stark naked in the middle of the woods. <laughs> that was a thing, I guess. They, they were pursuing all these ways of what is self-optimization, and they wrote their reflections on it. 
And isn't it interesting that we're all just seeking for something, aren't we? We're all out there looking, trying to become, trying to experience, trying to achieve. And then we come here to church in the morning and we hear God's law and then we hear the prayer, we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Do you believe that this morning? It's not a fatalistic way of approaching life. Rather, it's a recognition of our human finiteness, of the the limits to our capacities that we actually have, particularly as it regards fulfilling the the mandate that we have of um, exercising dominion over the earth and bearing God's image out in the world. It was actually an Episcopalian, um, Samuel Shoemaker, who infamously or famously started the um, AA program, Alcoholics Anonymous. He recognized this, this spirit of this collect very well. There's, there's no power in ourselves to help ourselves. And, and recognizing people who have addictions to particular substances or behaviors desperately need to admit, what's the first step in a 12-step program? Admit you're powerless to control your own life. And in so many ways, as the gathered church of Jesus Christ, one of the primary things we need to do is remind one another that independently and even together, we are desperately unable to save ourselves, to help ourselves. Though if you looked at my life, you wouldn't necessarily come to that conclusion. I may may not be in a 12-step program for a particular vice, but my addiction looks much more acceptable I have ways of retaining a semblance of control over my life. Um, You know, here's the question we should ask ourselves in this idea of we're coming powerless, just like in 12-step programs. How How are you dealing with disappointment when things don't go your way? How do you respond when you've worked really hard and poured yourself into something and it just doesn't achieve the desired result? How do you live in a world where things just don't seem to always work, despite your best efforts? See, underneath the veneer that we have that keeps it together, it lies terrors that we tend to seek to avoid, the demon in the dark of our basement. And it's a fear of being vulnerable. It's a fear of needing. Under that, a fear of feeling rejected unwanted, unloved. So I don't know how you heard God's law this morning, but it does begin with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God has already intervened. He has already come and brought salvation to the people of Israel. And then he's calling them to something beyond a code of ethics. It's a description of his very character and how he expects his image bearers to live in the world. But I find myself so not in control. So I throw myself into things like career success or financial prosperity or achieving social status of respectability. Or I veg out on Netflix and HGTV when that doesn't work. You know, we try diets, we try exercise plans, we try to we try to be as healthy as we can be to stave off the inevitable, that our bodies will deteriorate, that we won't look like we, were, we did when we were in our 20s, when we are in our 40s and 50s. And for parents, 
We know so well the, the painful tension, don't we, of wanting our children to become something, to achieve something, to have ample opportunity. And yet we know that comes with the drive that we have to ensure that my kid has the best education, the best access to opportunity. You know, when I watch Isaac play baseball or my, when I took my girls to a daddy-daughter dance this weekend, you know, all the other kids and people on the field or on the dance floor, they're just, they're in black and white. But my kids are in technicolor, man. They are just, yes, everybody should be looking at them. We all feel this way, and that's, that's an aspect of love. We love them. We feel highly about them. And yeah, this can devolve into helicopter parenting, can't it? It can evolve, evolve into a, a self-involvement that my kid needs to have the best, even at the expense of others. We all experience this, whether you're doing self-help or just trying to survive your life. In the age of YOLO, you do you, we have limitless possibility at the tips of our fingers. You can see this on college campuses right now. The American Psychological Association has actually had to diagnose something new. It's called perfectionistic self-presentation. Very fancy gobbledygook, um, right? Perfectionistic self-presentation. You know, can you take a stab at what that is? That is a tendency that we have to, to make our life look like one long string of enviable triumphs that we're going from one victory to another, that we seem to just go from a fantastic vacation to eating a really cool meal to sitting down and having relaxing time over a cup of coffee in a hipster um, coffee shop. And this is all Instagrammed and Facebooked, right? Well, it's causing people to have a lot of anxiety when they recognize the gap between what their feed says on Instagram and what their life really looks like. It's a new way of keeping up with the Joneses. The result for us in our culture is an ever-shifting, technology-amplified attempt at improvement of ourselves, and then by extension, an improved society. But it all comes without recourse or mercy for those who fail to reach their God-given potential, which I have to be the bearer of this news this morning, is every one of us. All of us. British journalist Will Starr said, wrote, we're living in an age of perfectionism, and perfection is the idea that kills. People are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. I'd postulate that often we are harder on ourselves than God is on us. We have these unrealistic, unrealistic expectations of what our life ought to look like, that I ought to have my heaven now, that it's a right and a mandate that I be happy. And it's turning and curving us inward on ourselves in a way that's unhealthy. It's not good. It's a crushing weight of expectations. It's like taking a beach ball and trying to push it under the water and going, see, I can do it. The self-help book helped me only to have that thing rise up. <laughs> the pressure can't keep that beach ball under the water. It's going to come up out of the water eventually. So we get to admit to each other today, we have no power to help ourselves. 
I once had a young girl in my youth group, and she uh, ended up having to go off for treatment at an eating disorder clinic, several of them actually. She blogged about the experience, and here's something that she said that I found really interesting. Anorexic people don't eat anything, I thought I could hear them want to say. I always wanted to laugh at that notion. I, thought, I always wanted to say, of course we eat, that's all we do. But I knew that would get met with some concerned looks. You see, all anorexics eat. It's all we do because we can't do anything else. This is not to say food is our obsession. It's just a placeholder for something larger, something darker, and something a lot more hairier and difficult to distinguish. Arrow through my heart. We're all, we're all gathering placeholders for something larger. And as image bearers of God, that something larger is intimacy and connection and knowing that you are loved by a God who is crazy about you. We desire God's love and his presence in ways that we often can't distinguish from our own um, pursuits of the good life, however we define that. And so we settle on what we, what's in front of our faces or what we think we have the ability to somehow control or manage. Ultimately, that's a misplaced hunger. Theologian John Calvin would say that we have, our hearts are idle factories. We're constantly trying to make, put, make things that are not ultimate into ultimate matters for us. I'll only be happy if I have the right relationship. I'll be happy when my kids behave in church. Ha! I'll only be happy, or I'll finally be happy when I'm in the right career, or when I have the right kind of house, or when life seems to work. We have in our gospel text today this, even the sad reality that sometimes religion can become a very dangerous and poisonous form of placeholder. Jesus comes into the temple, it's the Passover feast, the biggest festival of the year, all the Jews are there, and they're gathered and they're ready to make their sacrifices. And what is it Jesus does? He doesn't come in meek and mild. He comes in cracking whips and flipping over tables, making a scene, comes in with anger. When it says he drove out these animals, that's that's the same Greek word used in the Gospels for exorcisms, when Jesus is casting out, driving out demons. By the power of God. Sometimes Jesus, I think, just needs to get our attention because we get things very twisted. We become curved in on ourselves and our own concerns. We're pursuing happiness or the good life, and we're distracted from what's really important and what is really of essential um, purpose in our lives. We find misplaced placeholders. And this is one of those moments where, sort of like the wizard Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. If you remember, Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins has the ring and he's supposed to give it to Gandalf and he won't give it. And he kind of turns, this dark shadow comes over his face and he's like, no, it's mine, it's my precious. And Gandalf seems to just grow enormously large in the room and is like, Bilbo Baggins, give me the ring. I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. And it's kind of like Bilbo gets freaked out and then ends up giving him the ring, not recognizing what he's doing. This is kind of Jesus' Gandalf moment. He's getting big and scary in front of the people and going, this isn't how my father's house is supposed to operate. You're turning this into a den of thieves and robbers. This is supposed to be a place of prayer, a place where people meet in fellowship and find connection and intimacy with God. 
It's an allusion in that that Jesus is saying to Zechariah 14, which is the day of the Lord that is coming, a day when God will bring all justice and righteousness and goodness and peace to the world. Jesus in this is establishing authority and saying he is the new temple. No longer do we need one made with stones. No longer do we need one that took 46 years to build. We have one in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the new temple is here, the place where we find connection with God and relationship with him, where we find forgiveness, not by the slaughtering of of bulls and goats and doves. The author of Hebrews says it's impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus is establishing that he is now the vessel and the gate and the way and the path to God not anything else. And as Christians, we have to recognize that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves, but we must look to Him who has already done this on our behalf. You know, it's a little chilly this morning when I woke up, but it's not cold enough for ice to glaze over the uh, Lake Eola out there. But just imagine you walk down there and, and Lake Eola was covered with ice. Now, is it better for you to have a lot of faith in a thin layer of ice to step onto it, or to have a little bit of faith and a lot of doubt and step onto a solid, thick slab of ice. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a solid, thick slab of ice that you can be sure will hold your weight up as you walk across it, no matter how much you doubt and fear and struggle to believe. It is still true and it is secure and solid. But all these other things that we build our lives on or we try to grasp for, to have the right life, to have the perfect life, to make things work, those things are all going to fissure and crack and we will fall through. If it's not now, that time is coming. So friends, I want to invite you once again this morning to come and trust Jesus the new and living temple, the, the, the person through whom we have access to God the Father. And I want to leave you with the words of Martin Luther, and a mighty fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Jesus Christ, it is he. Lord Sabbath his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Look to Jesus. He has won the battle. He is the author and the perfecter of our salvation. We are powerless to help ourselves, but he has done it. Amen.